You may find this hard to believe, but 60 songs that explain the 90s, America's favorite poorly named music podcast is back with 30 more songs than 120 songs total. I am your host, Rob Harvilla, here to bring you more shrewd musical analysis, poignant nostalgic reveries, crude personal anecdotes, and rad special guests, all with even less restraint than usual. Join us once more on 60 Saws That Explain the 90s every Wednesday on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC Slim Fit Trouser. But I am a joggers guy. I just, once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I want to wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com. Welcome back to another episode of the Ringers NBA Draft Show. My name is Kevin O'Connor, and joining me, as always, is the Ringers' Jay Kyle. Man, what's going on, man? How are you doing on this Tuesday as we record? Yeah, what day doing? is this? Where am I? What? Yeah. <laughs> what's going on? <laughs> Frequently feel like that in my life, just walking in a fog, but we're walking in a pleasant fog here coming up on June, ready to talk about some a, a plethora of things, right? Some current events, some trying to sort of disassemble something that was kind of unorthodox is working in the playoffs. Um, it's interesting it, It's interesting to kind of get into it, like uh, drafting at the top and having like serious questions about philosophy and not drafting guys at all and having it work brilliantly. Um, I don't know. The draft is a mystery, mystery Kevin. I don't, I don't know if we're going to unravel it on this show, but <laughs> we'll give it a good college try, won't we? Yeah. But we, we are not going to unravel the mystery of the draft on... <laughs> the Ringers NBA Draft Show, because nobody is ever going to unravel the mystery of the NBA Draft. That's why Caleb Martin and Gabe Vincent and those guys fall undrafted. Why Duncan Robinson and Max Struess get, you know, Struess gets cut by the Celtics. He was on the Celtics a couple years ago and he got cut. Caleb Martin was with the Hornets and they cut him. I mean, you can have these guys in your organization and, and still, even still, miss because development is so hard to figure out and situation time and place and opportunity all goes into it yet here we are kyle we get the miami heat the denver nuggets and the nba playoffs two really fascinating teams um i mean played dramatically differently miami's adaptability throughout the postseason i thought has been amazing to watch shape-shifting styles denver does that on a possession by possession basis with the brilliance of Jokic with what he can be on offense with with Miami and Denver in the finals, is there anything you know broadly you feel like the other twenty eight teams could be looking at, thinking, "Huh, here's what we can adapt to our team with this prospect and this year's draft class." Is there anything that broadly comes to mind? 
Um, I feel like in the past few years, a big phenomenon, just I think one of the broadest possible kind of phenomenons that you could observe is the pick and roll obsession that kind of happened for, I don't even know how many years you would say. I mean, it was a solid five years and it kind of swelled to the point where I feel like analytics were like, hey, you know, if you got one guy that can make a lot of decisions, uh, the pick and roll was sort of a great vehicle to do that, to, to access the corners, you know? I feel like... I don't know. I'm thinking back about like LeBron was one of the guy, one of the early guys that I remember like really accessing like the full width of the floor with like his ambidextrous passing. Can you think? Is he the first person? Like I know Harden kind of like sort of maxed that out. That that's a big. I'm I'll work my way to the Heat and to the it, this will come full circle. But first, just kind of like talking about that trend. Um, I feel like we did get kind of pick and roll obsessed for a little while in the NBA. Do you, do you would you agree with that or disagree? Aren't we still? I think it's still a heavy tool. Like I mean, I still it, it is definitely an uh, like an arrow in the quiver that gets used over and over again. But I do think that it's balanced a little bit in the past few years, mainly in like I mean, the Warriors played a big part in this. I think having a guy, the the pressure. I think it's two things: having the pressure of shooting, which Denver does, which Miami does. And then you then that opens up a whole world. It sort of takes the place of just depending on driving the ball, right? Instead of like, you know, have, having one guy who is like a, a dominant driver, you can put the ball in a stationary player's hands, which we saw the Kings who nearly, you know, took down the Warriors and were one of the best offenses in the league this past year, made a lot of hay out of like back cutting, combining that back cutting and shooting phenomenon, right? And it makes you wonder if this is a trend that's going to have sort of like an endpoint where it pivots to something else, or if this is a thing that is going to continue to go for a while. But that's the big thing is that both of these teams have that. Miami has sort of like, they're a little less so since like 2020 when they made the finals against the Lakers. But it seems to me that that's something that these two teams do have in common, right? Is that uh, they don't drive the ball as much uh, as as other teams. Yeah, and, and like with the pick and roll as a primary vehicle for that, you mean, with both of them, because they have so many different other ways they play and initi- like initiate their offense. Like, are you touching on kind of like how with Miami and Denver, they aren't just this high pick and roll over and over and over team. They are They are teams that can do that, but they can also run some elbow actions like we see with Jokic or we see with Bam. They can use screening actions off ball like with Duncan Robinson or Jamal Murray. Like They have different ways to get and generate positive offensive actions to get quality shots. Yeah, yeah. I think that's been the big thing is that we kind of saw, like, a, I've, I think I've probably made this point before on this show, but just that we saw, we saw it hit like a fever pitch of like, you know, there was that year where I guess it was 2019, where like the four or five best offenses in the league were all really heavily dictated by one person. Kind of all rippled out from one person. It was like Giannis, Jokic, LeBron, Luca. I think Harden might have been in there. But I, I kind of feel like it's it, we've realized collectively that you need to be multifaceted. I still think that like the pick and roll is still like a hugely important thing. The two main game between Jokic and Murray is one of the most beautiful things to watch in basketball and, and also not just aesthetically nice. Uh, they're kicking people's ass with it. Um, but it, it's just an interesting, I'm encouraged by it, to be honest, Kevin. Like, um, I like it. I like it because it promotes things that are sort of central to what the sport was designed to be, which is, um, you know, spreading the, the floor out, passing the ball, not just so isolation and pick and roll heavy, like, 
they're still important tools situationally, but I don't know. I, I just didn't really enjoy the back cutting like and, and things like that. I, and like, and also, you know, guards screening each other off ball is another big thing too um, that I, I've kind of been paying totally. more attention to in, in the draft. Well, I mean, the interesting thing is looking at the regular season, I just pulled up the pick and roll stats per game on second spectrum. Uh, Phoenix was number one in the league with 82.7 pick and rolls per game. No big surprise there with their personnel, Chris Paul, Devin Booker, Kevin Durant. Um, Number 13 was Miami at 69.2 per game. Number 30 was the Sacramento Kings at 54.8. Number 29 was Denver at 55.6 Look per at game. That. I pulled that off the out of just out. I didn't even look that up, Kevin. What do you think? I got that right. Just from my, my eyeballs. <laughs> how do you feel about you're that? Smart, you're a smart <laughs> man, Kyle, man. You are. What a guess. <laughs> you're 100% right, though, Kyle. I mean, you got Denver. You got Miami. Miami has an uptick in pick and rolls per game in the postseason. But, I mean, we're going to see it from game one and however long the series lasts. These two teams have so many different ways to generate buckets. And this was the issue I took, you know, with that Celtics offense where it just felt like they were the more one-dimensional team despite having so many guys that in past situations that you've seen them operate in a system in which they've moved off ball, been using screening actions, using inverted screens for bigger players. There's just like none of that offensive creativity with the Boston offense. And I just wonder if maybe some of these teams will look in the mirror this offseason and say, hmm, we see this eight seed Miami go all the way to the NBA Finals really driven behind great player performances. I don't want to take anything away. Players players win games, but coaching staffs create schemes for players to perform. They get they give them the sheet of paper and say, okay, now now go go do the take this test, right? And make the most of it. And Miami has done that. And I, I think maybe that in the draft this year, I think this year, Kyle, I don't know how if you feel the same way, but 20 to 45 or so. And I know we say this a lot, but I mean, can you, is there really a dramatic difference between like Colby Jones, who's 19 on my board right now, and Maxwell Lewis at 38? or Jordan Walsh at 43, or Kobe Brown at 48. I mean, like a lot of these guys from like a big range, I could see them being the types of players who fit into these types of schemes that we're talking about here where they can play more basic pick and roll, but also fit into a team requiring quick decision-making and movement and cutting and all that jazz. Um, I don't know. There's just a lot of players in this class that I feel like fit that type of player for these teams that we're talking about. Yeah, I, I I think, you know, the popular thing, obviously, is to dig in and take hardline stances on things. And I think I think if you were answering the question that you just asked um, and you scoffed at it and were like, no, nah, and you just, I mean, this these playoffs, you know, Miami in particular, which we can touch on more in detail in a second, but I mean, uh, you'd just be really short-sighted and dare I say maybe a little bit dumb to, ass- to assume that you know for sure that like the 49th guy won't end up being, I, I just really, and I've talked to a few different people, um, you know, that cover the draft or that are around teams and I don't think that we are unique in that feeling. Like it does feel like it's flat. And I do think that the, you know, the multifaceted, multi-siloed, whatever you want to call it, the more diverse you can be in your looks, um, 
you know, the, the, the harder you are to guard. Now, granted, you have to be able to do that on both ends. You can be the best offensive team in the world, but you can't stop anybody, you know. Um, so balancing those two t- things is tough. And I guess reading into reading into what, like, the characteristics are of a player uh, that make up a player that can play in these types of playoffs. I, I mean, I still feel like defense is the thing that, you know, that that's the thing you see over and over again. Like uh, players, just if you can't stay on the floor, you're going to get targeted. Even even in like a mm. really short term conditional basis, like a great defender like Tatum, those are the things that get attacked the most frequently. But like if you have guys that aren't attentive off ball, uh, like we were talking about the off ball screening, um, Miami a lot of times will screen each other off ball. The Warriors kind of popularized that on like the weak side. It's not as simple as like a guy lifting and hitting a three. Like how smart of a cutter are you? Those are the kinds of things that you kind of just have to go down the line, like micro skills in a player. It's not just like, can he run the pick and roll? He may not run a ton of pick and roll in the NBA, but is he a great cutter, a Bruce Brown? Things like that. Those are the details you kind of have to be looking for. A guy who comes to mind that kind of fits this type of description we're talking about, Jordan Miller out of Miami. We see the Hurricanes go to the Final Four, and, and Jordan Miller, he's you know not the type of guy who so far has proven that he can be a, a knockdown shooter. Um, you know, he's 32.9% in five collegiate seasons on a low volume, only 73% of his free throws. But if you're projecting forward with somebody like that, you can say he has great touch around the basket. You know, he's been an elite at room finisher. He, and even if he is an average shooter, you're like, okay, this guy is a smart cutter. He is such a quirky finisher around the rim. Which I love. That's one of my favorite traits for yes. a player. Yeah. Absolutely. And he can pass. Um, he's got that post fadeaway. He's such an active rebounder. And as you're saying, like we're talking offensive versatility, but he has the defensive foundation with his length and toughness and grit and rebounding ability to manage to continue to carve out minutes. And yes, he's 23 years old. And yes, maybe he doesn't have the upside of some other guys, but like I think we've seen enough, you know, Caleb Martins of the world and or Desmond Bain who does get drafted in the first round. These guys who are older upperclassmen that actually no, sometimes they do have higher upside. They're not they're not just who they are when they enter the league. And these types of guys can get better. And that's true for, you know, Kobe Brown, who's twenty three, Keontae Johnson, um, guys like that. I, I think in the forties or even the thirties. Even the twenties, hell, man! Like I'm, I, I'm just saying, like if you're a team that that has contending hopes, why not? Like why not over a gamble? I just, I can't, I couldn't argue against that if you're a team in, in the twenties that feels that way. Granted, a lot of teams that uh, are in the twenties traded their picks, mm. um, but the point still stands. Yeah, specifically with Jordan Miller, I mean, yeah, it, you get sort of a, he can move up and down the spectrum with the size, you know, you could argue about, I forget what he measured. Did he measure six the four. Yeah, okay, see, yeah. 6'4", six, six but a seven-foot wingspan. Awesome, yeah, help you play up. Yeah, yeah. he's he's way over-listed, <laughs> way over-measured on some of this. He's 6'7", on this site, which yeah, um, right? wish, wishful Doesn't he? Take. I mean, because his arms are so long, he looks 6'7". Mm-hmm. And he rebounds like a guy who's 6'7", but that shows the importance of you know, positional awareness and length. 
uh, the, the, he has both of those at such a high level. Yeah, it's funny how little, just little tweaks and like, uh, I, I always am amused by the, the, you don't, I won't name any specific names, but I'll, I'll hear people talk about certain players have like short necks. Uh, they actually, you know, that their, their, their height is like <laughs> deceptive or their torso is maybe longer. <laughs> There's a lot more detail to it than just the height or just the wingspan. But with Miller specifically, yeah, you like those guys who can kind of guard up and down the spectrum can, that, that have the mobility. Um, I'll, I'll sort of throw to a, um, a characteristic that Sharks really love, which was two point percentage and which, that seems like a simple, like dumbed down thing to like say, like, like it just seems overly simple, I guess. But like, it's not in the fact that like, you really want to have the, I, I think the reason it's so important is that like, if you can't start from that baseline of like efficiently converting like easy stuff, you talked about like the craftiness around the rim, like just layup making. If you're going to be a, if you're going to be a cutter and you're a terrible finisher, you can't get to the line. Like his free throw rate was, was decent this year, 64th percentile, 31.3%. Um, but he was, he was just a, he got a lot of paint points that in the postseason and the regular season, you know, he got 9.4 point paint points per game, which was 99th percentile in the country. Um, Miller does seem like somebody that's being overlooked. And I think sometimes that can be a function. I'll just throw this to you. I mean, it can be sort of a commentary on role in college. Like sometimes you look for like the best player on a team that can sometimes be misleading depending on their age and in relation to the player there, or maybe they're not fully qualified to be a primary, but they're very qualified to be like a secondary role player. Um, I don't know. What do you, what do you think about that sort of dynamic with, with looking at players who might be steals? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's, I don't know if that, you don't think that applies to Miller necessarily, right? Cause he's kind of playing the role that you would, besides maybe some of the, turnaround jumpers and the creation that we see in that sense but he shows a lot of the things you're talking about like is there are you talking more of like an isaiah wong type his teammate where he was more of a primary creator there and he's then gonna have to adapt in the nba is that what you're touching on yeah yeah absolutely i mean because you think about like nigel pack and isaiah wong are like very qualified to be college like heavy touch ball handlers yes but in the league you know you know pack's gonna struggle just because of his size and things like that like I love him as a player, but like he does have questions going forward. Wong, I think Wong strikes me as like a guy like later in your rotation who comes in and just keeps the keeps the water running with your offense. Like I could see him being that, especially if he buys in defensively. Not trying to like make this a Miami podcast, but Miller specifically doesn't. I, it doesn't seem to me like he's going to have like roll whiplash when he goes into the league. I think that's something too that's important. Um, it, it just seems like he's going to be adaptable just because of. He's used to fitting in playing next to those guys who play that way. So that's uh, that's something uh, that's something I think that works in his favor. Is there any player who comes to mind that fits the criteria you're talking about? Somebody that is going to have that role whiplash where they're going to have to adapt immediately besides Amani Bates. Oof, that's a good. <laughs> <laughs> Where's Oh, Amani. Watch Amani come Jaylen out. Just, Wil- How about Jalen Wilson with Kansas? Uh, yeah, I was going to say, watch Amani be amazing or as much as all the stuff we've said about I, it. I but. hope Amani's amazing. <laughs> I really do. Yeah. I, I said it to you earlier in the year on the pod. I, I love watching him because it's so ugly. But it's also so fun. It's yeah. fun. The dude just jacks up shots at yeah. will. At the combine, I, do, I, I will say, he put in better effort. On defense, he was making some passes. Oh, yeah. 
And, Making some uh, passes. What a glowing endorsement. <laughs> <laughs> I want that to be He's, on his uh, on his draft like graphic for ESPN. <laughs> Kevin O'Connor, he was making some passes. Heavy quotes. Well, with a question mark at the end, though. It's like, making some passes? Your voice goes up. Yeah. Making some passes. Um, I'm Ron Burgundy. Yeah. Uh, it turns into, like, roll whiplash. I mean, yeah, Wilson is an interesting one just because he was a little older. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's going to be turning 23. I guess when you're playing with younger guys, uh, that can be the case. Terrence Shannon, I think, is somebody that's probably going to have some of that. That's too. a good one. Shannon just so erratic, like we've talked about. I mean, I, I guess it's just sort of these um, guys that could be accused of being inefficient, sort of primary scores. Um, looking down through the list here, oh gosh, I mean, yeah, Amani's the one that really jumps to mind. I, uh, among the first round, I think would be. I mean, talking about guys that I don't think will have whiplash is like Hakez is probably somebody. It's why I like him so much. Um, Man, he's sort I of, love, I love Hame. He's had every role on the ship, right? Like he's done everything. He's been the mm-hmm. he's been the lookout. He's steered. He's done. I always use the ship metaphor, but um, I don't know. Is there somebody that jumps out to you? Like I mean, I mean, Sasser will probably have the ball in his hands where where he ends up. But it's, I mean, whether he's a starter or not, I don't. I'm not going to rule it out. But I'm just saying that he's one. Is there one that jumps out to you? Brandon Pajinski. I mean, obviously, like he has a heavy role in Santa Clara going to have to, you know, adapt at some point in the NBA, regardless of where he goes. Hood Shafino, you know, young guard, he'll have to adapt uh, to a lesser role in the NBA. Uh, other than that, I, I don't, like, not a lot. I mean, like a Bryce Sensabaugh out of Ohio State, a score-first wing, you know, able to jack shots from mid-range, not pass a lot, not play a lot of defense. He's going to have to adapt to continue to carve out minutes in the NBA. But you're right. Like I think that that is something teams do think about is is seeing them play different roles in college allows you to more easily envision who they'll be in the NBA. And that's I mean, I'm glad you brought up Jame Hakez because he's the type of guy who can play in that Denver system. He can play in that Miami system. He can play in any type of system. You can plug and play him anywhere. And I I I'm having a hard time ranking him because I, I think he's gonna be really good for a long time in the NBA. Um, but I don't know how high I can put them. I, I just I'm having a hard time with these rankings. But that's that's the thing with like draft rankings. Like one of the things I I, I might do um, this last month with the draft guide. But it's like having having one ranking for upside, one ranking for certainty. Because for a certainty rankings, like if I'm a team that's saying I'm I'm not worried about taking a swing here. I want a guy who's going to be rock solid in my organization. Jaime Hawkins is probably top 20 on my board. But if I'm a team that's drafting for long-term upside, trying to take a swing, yeah, you're going to probably take Dariq Whitehead over him. You're probably going to take Jalen Hood-Shafino over him because you're like, yeah, these guys are four years younger and they still have a lot of talent. And theoretically, by the time they're 23 for the, their second contract, we hope this guy is an all-star caliber talent. That That's what you're hope for. Um, it's just like differing draft philosophies play into it so much. What do you think about that idea? Like if I did that on the draft guide, I had like three separate rankings, the conservative rankings for teams, you know, looking to for a certain player who can help now, the upside rankings, and then kind of the middle aggregate rankings, which is what it currently is for factoring in everything. 
I like that. Yeah. It's sort of a floor ceiling thing because, you know, sometimes you yeah. get obsessed with you look, you your eyes fixate on the ceiling and you look down and be like, oh, wait, like I there's I'm standing on sand. Like, you know, whereas like if you draft a, uh, a Jaime Jaquez solid foundation, but the floor, you know, the ceiling might not be as high. That's the risk we take, I guess, at the, at the well, not you, you and I, I guess you and I, the risk we take of being wrong evaluating them. But um, if you think about like a Hawkes, he just seems like he has a solid floor. And I'm, I mean, if, you, if you're looking at just the things that he would be willing to buy into consistently, you know, and, and not waver in his effort level. Um, and there are other guys like that in the draft. I mean, like, Hendricks feels pretty safe to me. I guess that's the question of some, like, you start to wonder about like what his upside is. I guess that's the conversation that I've always had a hard time with with him. Some people seem to think that his upside's pretty high. Some of the limitations for me, I know we're going to be talking more about specific skills that can be sort of heavy caveats for guys, ball handling being another one, a major theme for somebody in these playoffs. Yeah, I like that idea. I like that idea. Um, kind of get a, It has like a head-heart vibe a little bit there. But yeah, um, yeah I'd, 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 I'd be interested to see that and, and to read that. You know, I'll tell you what, if Taylor Hendricks, if his last name was spelled H-E-N-D-R-I-X, he would be number two on my board. Good two. Same. Yeah, I mean, that's good for it. It's like a plus five. Yeah. You know, it's like 2K. That's that's an, uh, <laughs> it's a bump. Just, just throwing that out there. I mean, if it's, <laughs> it, it, the way it's spelled right now, it's not quite a reminder of Jimmy. Um, it's nice to say, though. It feels good saying Hendricks, and I hope I'm saying Hendricks for the next 10, 10 to 15 years with Taylor Hendricks. I love that dude's game. Yeah, hopefully he can hear Jimmy during his career at some point, right? Do you see upside with him? You mentioned how some people say he has higher upside than others. I have him as it currently stands. The draft guide hasn't updated yet. We're going to do an update either this week or early next week. I have him sixth on my upcoming update. I've had him 10. I had him 10 on January 19th, 10 on March 9th, 8th on April 4th, 7th on March 15th, on May May 15th, sorry. And now it's six on the upcoming update for June. Is that too high? Too low? Well, with me with the upside there? Let me let me poke you a little bit here and ask questions. So poke. I'm I, well poke because, because I'm I'm curious. So he keeps climbing. Is there more tape that you've seen that is like pushing that is solidifying you? What is what's the differentiator for you? That's making you think. And is is there something current that's going on in the playoffs that's going on? Just like what what specifically is the thing? Because he's really rising. Like I past these other guys. Is there a specific thing that you could point to that you're saying like, okay, this is like making me think for sure this guy is like the fail rate is really low. I think he's been in the same lump, you know, at ten and six. Like that's that's a group where like you can kind of mix and match those guys and you know, depending on the team and the philosophy. So I think that's like he's in the same tier, I should say, as he's been since January. That hasn't changed. However, I've bumped him ahead of guys like I moved him ahead of Jarris Walker, who I really like, ahead of Cam Whitmore, um, who's six months younger, obviously a, a superb athlete. I just I just think with Taylor Hendricks, like everything we're talking about here with Denver, with Miami, he can fit into those systems like a glove defensively six, eight with versatility. Um, he's so smart with his rotations. He's so tough. Um, like the type of dude who I, I feel like he can play as a four for your team and be that guy who's sliding in 
and helping a, a, around the rim, um, blocking shots or altering shots. He's somebody who can switch. He can he can just play in any different scheme. That's important. We see that with Miami. They constantly switch what they were doing against Boston. I think Hendricks has the IQ and the toughness to do that and the skill to do that. And then offensively, 39.4% this past season. He's not just a standstill guy. He can hit shots with a bit of movement. Um, we've seen him be somebody who can pick and pop and attack off the bounce. Uh, he can make the right play as a passer. He can face up a little bit. He can take that pull up. He's not like a, a self-creator necessarily. We didn't see him run pick and rolls in college this past season. But overall, I just think he checks so many boxes and he's a solid finisher around the basket. I think you want to see even more improvement there um, than what he did at college. He did have some uh, poor misses around the basket. But I think with NBA spacing, he's not going to be defended by primary defenders I mean, he's not going to get the the a lot of attention, especially as a young player. I just think he's somebody who could fill any role and be a, a an enhancing, complementary player with the room to potentially grow over the course of time. At only 19 years old, um, still with upside, I, I just feel like he's such a strong bet uh, compared to some of the other options after. The Thompson twins after Scoot, after Miller, after Wemby. Like, I love Jarris Walker um, as well. I'd give the slight edge to Hendricks right now, but, you know, over Whitmore, Black, Wallace, you know, that kind of group, Grady Dick, those guys. I don't know. Hendricks just feels like a guy who's going to be in the league 10 to 15 years and win a hell of a lot of games to me. Is it similar to sort of the way we were talking about Keegan Murray and the fact that like you think that like Keegan was the focal point and like he has all, he has all these skill sets. He's not necessarily an on-ball guy. Had a lot of kind of questions about some questions that he addressed summer league immediately. Uh, something he'd been working on, I think. But you know, roughly similar size. You know, he measured at six eight and a quarter without shoes, seven foot wingspan, like you were saying. Um, something that jumps out though, I think, whenever you look at the spacing is the the big I mean, that's the marquee thing. I, I do like if you're looking at, at a guy with like star upside, I don't want to like overreact and compare him to like a, you know, like a Michael Porter Jr., who like has really, really a higher upside, but also kind of struggled to connect the finishing and the efficiency around the rim with the things that he did facing up. Um, I think you kind of have to be optimistic and be in a situation where you have time to grow if you're going to be that type of player or be playing with like a great playmaker who can make your life a little bit easier. But when you're looking at like the types, you, you were talking about how multifaceted he is, like where he's going to fit in. And I think I expressed to you some worry about the dribbling affecting him, like like where he's going to go, I think is going to affect speaking to like the big playmaker making your life easier. It does, it does lessen my worry a little bit to, when you look at like how diverse he is as a three-point shooter. Now, he like just for like going down the line here, 99 spot-up attempts, and he was 37.4%. In transition, he shot 55.6% from three, granted 18 shots. Uh, it, it, as like a pick-and-pop guy, he only attempted nine threes, but he hit on 55.6. Um, you just go down the line and you don't – there's not like a black eye on his three point attempts, right? Like there's not an area where you're just like, I, he's cause some guys are just like, they, they, they are tunnel vision. They catch, they shoot. He shows some movement at like with shoes on. He might be six ten, you know? So, I mean, on that basis, talking about like a solid foundation, that's pretty solid. Like I do expect that to translate. Absolutely. And, and I think with him, you know, one of the things I've seen on draft Twitter 
you know, our friend Raphael Barlow tweeted it out earlier today, actually. I mentioned, I said how I think he's a good at-room finisher. You know, one of the knocks on him, Hal, has been he's not a good at-room finisher statistically when he's not dunking the ball. He hit only 44.7% of layups and non-dunk finishes around the basket this season, according to Synergy Sports. And that's not a great number. Kind of Jabari-esque a little bit, you know. Yes, it's, it's just, it's not a great number. Um, but I still think like the dunking matters. <laughs> I mean, he he dunked thirty seven times, uh, made thirty five of them. Um, like he's a hot, he's a high rate of dunk player around the basket. The layups, it's still only a sample of ninety four shots. And I know that's you know it's not it's not even a hundred though. But you can go back to his Nike EYBL numbers um, on Synergy. He hit sixty five percent of his layups, only twenty attempts. But if like you're just adding it all together and making the sample bigger and bigger and just looking at his touch from, I don't think it's like a lack of touch issue. He's got touch from mid-range. He's got touch from three. He's got touch on those little floaters from mid-range. I think that, I think that 45% number is probably going to go down as an outlier. And I, I trust him to get better over the course of time, considering his athleticism and his touch. I don't know, man. I, I I love Taylor Hendricks. I just think he's going to be a really good player for a long time, and like he's the guy I feel really strongly about this year. That's it's going to be a, a instant impact player potentially, um, but if not, uh, somebody who's going to impact the game positively for a long time. I don't know that I could get as high as six, but I do think that he's somebody that like I definitely think late lottery. I see I see him. I'm a little more comfortable with him. Um, you just look at like the percentage of his offense. Like, he, I mean, yeah, I mean, like 28.1% of his attempts at the rim, 16.9 in the lane. I mean, he does have a little bit of like one dribble pull up game. I get a little bit worried. I always call him the kind of the wilting flowers off the dribble, but uh, handle is just so important, right? Like, teams are just going to crowd you if you if you don't have the ability to like make a decision to get into the teeth of the defense. Granted, if you're 6'9", pushing 6'10", and you can shoot threes, and you have a high release point, that can alleviate some of that. But the cutting the cutting thing could make his life a little bit easier. It definitely could. If we're talking upside, you know, however, like that's where you do factor in the creation that you're talking about. And that was the thing years ago with Jalen Brown um, in his year's draft class in 2016, where... You know, Cal, he was a clunky ball handler, very robotic, wasn't very good creating off the dribble for himself. Granted that he was playing, you know, with two bigs in the system back then, and there wasn't great spacing at all. He's improved a lot over the years to become the the guy that he is now, an all-NBA player, multi-time all-star. Um, you know, he was better than Jason Tatum in the finals last year, um, at least on paper. Um, but then you see the flaws. Uh, you know, the Warriors last year in the postseason forcing him to his left hand. Uh, this year, Miami really gobbling him up in Game Seven with eight turnovers, only five assists, only eight of twenty-three. His limitations as a player were really put on paper. And granted, he's in a position to sign a five-year, two hundred ninety-five million dollar contract, which the Celtics very well could give him. I disagree with it. I think it would end up being a mistake. Um, but for a lot of reasons that are, you know, listen to the mismatch, listen to Kyle um, on his pods to hear more Jalen Brown contract co- talk stuff for, for, for our purposes. I do think it is interesting to see a player who has reached great heights as he has, 
but still not have that creation ability that the best of the best actually do. Uh, are there any players in this year's draft class where you're like, hmm, Jalen Brown serves as a cautionary tale of the limits of upside uh, for the the absolute peak that a player could reach as a player? Is it like a Cam Whitmore? Is, is it anybody else that, that makes you think about it? That's Cam, the one. Uh, last, year, last year, I think the, the guy who was kind of in this category was Shaden Sharp, who like really worked on his handle a lot, but like against... And if you want to even go back, I mean, it, it can just be such a limiter. You know, if you look at like Cam Reddish, you go back and look at like Kevin Knox, the guys who fold up like whenever they they meet body contact. Those guys are a little more tall and skinny with Whitmore and with Brown and with Sharp. I feel like they're more physic, way more physically uh, imposing. Like they they're just their core strength is greater. I'm doing this. Uh, you can't really see it on the on the Riverside, but Whitmore is the one where your mind goes because I was talking with somebody about. Um, I hate to be like a, a, a parody of myself, but like Whitmore measured out um, as having pretty small hands. And that was kind of one of the things about Jalen. Um, this gets into kind of the philosophy of development and what's possible past a certain age uh, and what like physical limitations can, you know, it's, it's not like every guy with small hands in the world is a bad ball handler. I just think that like there's something that happens when you're, you know, because Brown, Brown was... Brown was like very, very physically dominant with when he was younger. And this is just me like theorizing. And you can tell me if you think I sound insane when I say this, but um, I haven't gone back and like watched his high school tape to kind of confirm this, but he was just so strong that it makes me wonder if it delayed some of that touch development when he was really, really young. I think I heard Steve Nash say one time that like, if you, if you don't like, it's a learning curve that is extremely steep. And if you're not on it really, really early, it becomes impossible to become like a, a Trey Young of the world, a Steph Curry, a Steve Nash, these guys that have like the ultimate touch. Um, Whitmore worries me for that reason. You know, you and I talked about him earlier in the year. He makes a couple dribble moves. He can make quick, really kind of efficient dribble moves. But when he starts going beyond that, and this is very Jalen-esque, um, the seams start to show, I feel like. And, it, it, and that's... They feel really similar. Is is that the guy that you think? Is there somebody that's more similar to that template, or is is Whitmore the guy that like is glaringly the most? Do you agree? I mean, Whit, Whitmore's Whitmore's number one for sure on the list. I mean, like he's like you said, he's got those flashy moves, the crossovers. Doesn't create a ton of space for them necessarily, but he's got some good, you know, plan A moves. But when it comes to the plan B moves, you're like, uh. I mean, he's kind of doing the stuff that he's practiced in an open gym, but doesn't have the natural improvisational skills of a Jimi Hendrix with the guitar in his hands, right? Like, those are the true ball handlers, the Kyrie Irvings, right? Yeah. Uh, for the best of the best. These guys who they just feel it in the moment, and it's natural to them, uh, regardless of the pressure, the defense, the a, a help defender coming in from the weak side, they're able to adjust in the fly. Jalen Brown, Cam Whitmore don't necessarily have that dynamic ability. And, you know, maybe that does place a ceiling on him that he compensates for in other ways. Um, but, like, even a guy like, you know, Cason Wallace, who you and I both like, I think Cason Wallace is going to be a good player for a long, long time because of his defense and all of his complementary skills on offense. But he doesn't quite have that elite handling, that elite athleticism and burst off the dribble where – Maybe he does have limits for the ceiling that he can reach. 
Uh, do you think that's fair with Kaysen Wallace? And is there anybody else, you know, in the lottery that kind of comes to mind in that in that category we're talking about? Wallace is really tough just because so much like if you go back and you watch his his high school stuff from when he was like playing with Rylan Griffin, the kid that plays it at uh, Alabama now, who I think is somebody to keep an eye on for next year, potentially. Um, when he was playing high school ball, he I, I just really think like the back thing is a serious issue. And mm. how often do backs stop being a thing? Like I know MPJ dealt yeah. with that too. Um, it worries me. It, it kind of bums me out because he did some wild stuff that we just didn't really see. We like the rim yep. pressure was just not there at Kentucky. And believe me, I endured this at, at great personal frustration. Um, I, I think it kind of like it kind of deflated a lot of offensively what they wanted to do just because he wasn't that downhill threat. I feel like he's more athletic than he showed, but I also like I do think his feel and his ball skills are, are ahead of Whitmore. Yes. Different type of, of guy. He's like the other side of the coin. Like we're talking feel guys that just don't have the natural handle and then the non feel guys that also don't have it. Yeah. I was gonna ask you, you're I was gonna try to make a, an illustration here to fit one of your one of your great interests, Warzone. Is there a gun in Warzone? I'm not a big gun guy in the real world. I've been in video games. Sure, I'll entertain this. Um, is there a big... Um, <laughs> I'm the same way. Fucking I've never hate touched guns. A, a, real, a real gun. I've never touched one in my life. <laughs> I've been around them all my life. Every, if you follow me on Twitter, you know how I feel about this. Uh, but no, is there, a, is there a gun that like for you works in sort of like shorter range situations that like you feel like you could be accurate with, but whenever you're on the move and you're having to make quick decisions, it's totally not the tool to be using? Is that... Totally. Is there? Can you can you speak yeah, to that? I mean, yeah, you're gonna use an SMG, you know, close range or or you know maybe er, like close mid range even, but you want to have an AR or an LMG you know, for that mid long mid to to long range. And if you have a long range in a in a short range situation, your aim down sight, you know, might be a bit too slow. And you're you're at a disadvantage against the people using the quicker guns. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm not no. sure how this relates to your point. So let's cross it over <laughs> even more, Kevin. Let's cross it over even more. Let's say I'm in a pick and roll and I've got an SMG. <laughs> I'm just saying I might get a little sloppy. I don't, and it, like if you think about the way, if you think about uh, like. I don't know. This is an insane <laughs> comparison. <laughs> I tried to keep it going, uh, but no. I mean. If you think about Brown, Brown to me, and Sirit and I had this conversation, and you should plug the thing you wrote too. Kevin wrote something about the Celtics and the, the decisions that they're going to have to be making involving Jalen, but um, on the ringer.com. I just think about like, it makes you wonder about like the best use for those guys. And I think the big difference here is that like, if, if they are working against the set defense, you start talking about like, okay, the, the, there's a threshold like, you know, Tatum has evolved as a ball handler. He's like worked Pascal Siakam, another example of a guy who's evolved as a ball. He, he had a good yep. baseline, but like the ball handling is the thing that sort of unlocked his like ceiling as a decision maker. It just puts a floor on it. And you watch and you watch Jalen last night. It's just like he's probably better off in these short bursts of overwhelming you with his strength and his quickness and his athleticism. I feel similar similarly about Whitmore. I could like could live to regret that that feeling, but that's kind of where I am with him. I just feel, and you know, Kamingo with like, you see it in these offenses that have like cutters and things like that, where they're not depended on. Um, I was wondering to you, like, how do you think like the Celtics would be in a different position if they philosophically had looked at Jamal Murray and said like, 
this is a guy who fits, you know, if you're looking back to 2016, this is a guy who fits the way the NBA is going. Where would they be in 2023? Do you think they'd be in a better or a worse spot? Like just looking at this through the prism of the draft and where the league is, you know? So if they take Jamal Murray at number three instead of Jalen Brown. So Which they worked Murray out, didn't they? I'm pretty sure they did. They thought about it, didn't yeah, they? They did, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it'd be very interesting in this situation because what would that have meant for Isaiah Thomas? Who cares? Um, <laughs> what would it have meant for Marcus, for, for Marcus Smart? They had Avery Bradley at the time, <laughs> Terry Rozier. So clearly, like you look at their roster at that time, they did have a lot of guards. So they probably try to flip one of those guys for another, you know, wing forward type for those younger Celtics teams. Um, if you if you just if you like it, let's say in the 2019 or so you plug Murray in for Brown at that point and you have Tatum coming along, maybe the fit works better at that point. But I also think with Jamal Murray, man, like he he fell into such a ideal situation with Jokic too. I mean, I, I look back at my scouting scouting report of Jamal Murray in 2016, and so many of like the the pluses and minuses with him, it's like wow, like I could not have anticipated that he would turn into the player that he is. I liked Murray; I think I had him eight, um, but I didn't love him. Others had him much higher than there. But I just pulled it up now, but it's like in there I have lethal off screen. Um, ambidextrous finisher around the rim, uh, excellent sense of space, timing, great hand-eye coordination, good instincts. These are things that matter next to Jokic, but they might not matter in a situation that's more, you know, like we're talking about, high pick and roll over and over, um, not as much movement on and off the ball. Like the Celtics don't have as much of that offensive diversity, um, which is where for, for Murray at the time, you know, he's gotten much better at it, but Sloppy ball handler, um, you know, struggles against length in the paint. Sub, you know, like those are those are things. Limited athletes, slow first step and foot speed. He's gotten better at those weaknesses for sure over the course of time. But those strengths, man, from Jamal Murray, like they they are complemented so perfectly by the player that Jokic is. And I, I'm not sure he would have manifested into the player that he is with Denver for Boston. It would have been a completely different type of developmental story for him for the Celtics compared to what he's been in Denver. I mean, you know, I'm curious if you feel the same way there with him. Yeah, I mean, that's I know that's a digression, but I mean, if you when you were describing that scouting report, I was just thinking, okay, so like a perfect modern guard. I mean, like you you feel in space and things. I I was a big Murray fan. Um, I don't know. But thinking about the ball handling thing, um, it can be... It can just be a limitation. I think it can kind of reframe the way that you you can be used or the way you're going to be used. Because I remember even in those finals, a lot of the shots that Jalen hit, I, I don't have like the stat in front of me, but a lot of them were just sort of like one dribble pull up, no dribble pull. Like, I mean, it was like, it wasn't a, a like really heavy, like balance creation dependent. Like a lot of the stuff he was hitting was just like, he could get to his shot, he could elevate. Um, I don't know. He was sort of working with what he had, but. And all this just kind of speaks to where you go. It it all really does matter. Hey man, I mean, we're only a couple of weeks away, and the destiny of so many of these players is gonna come down to situation, opportunity, fit, surrounding circumstances with the teammates they're on on the floor with, 
Um, that's what makes the drafts hard, man. Yeah, that's what makes it very difficult. Is is that is everything we're talking about here, Kyle? This is a fun pod. I'm looking forward to next week. Well, well, next week today, when you hear this, is May 31st. This is the day of the early entry, early entrant deadline. Players can take their names out of the draft. It's not going to be a lot of big names. Um, some have already dropped out, but over the next week, we'll get more news in the draft class. Aside from some of the international guys, will be locked in. We'll be in the middle of the NBA Finals. Draft rumors are going to be picking up for damn sure. Kyle, we're going to have a heck of a lot to discuss in the coming weeks, man. You're headed to Denver, man. Are you gonna? I'm excited for you to get down there and have some nice food and drink. I know you're from LA, but you know Denver's Denver's pretty chill too. Uh, have yeah, a- I mean, I'm not gonna have a lot of time anywhere because my plan is I'm in Denver for Game One, and then guess where I'm flying? You're going to a wedding, Denver. aren't you? You're going like to. I'm like, going to a wedding. I'm flying to Boston. <laughs> oh hell yeah! You were hoping it would be. You'd hoping you were nah. hoping you'd double dip, right? That was the plan. No, nah, I mean sort of, but also not really. Uh, okay. But uh, yeah, so I'm flying to Denver and then to Boston between games one and two. What a nut! I've never done this much flying over a short amount of time period. It's like five flights in four days or something like that. Good God. Um, no, no, it's, not, it's four flights in five days. That's what it is. But yeah, wedding, one of my best friends, Saturday night. I'm looking forward to that. That'll be awesome. Um, and yeah, then uh, next next week, be back in L.A. And you'll be here in L.A. hopefully soon for the NBA draft. It's going to be fun. It is definitely going to be fun. I can't wait. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the Ringers NBA Draft Show. Thank you to Jesse Lopez for producing. Have a great rest of your day.